Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, uh, Barry Katz. I am very, very pumped for this podcast. It's a clear day up here on the 24th floor. You can see the city, the ocean, and it's all really great because I'm here with Suzanne Daniels and she's been a big part of my life, my whole career. I've known her from the very beginning when I was a little man in this business, and I still am, but uh, I still have to dream a little bit. And uh, I always say this to a select few people who I sit down here with, and she's one of them, is that she always treated me like I belonged, even when I didn't belong. She always thought that there was something that maybe I had to offer, and um, I always appreciated that. And so as I like to do, I like to tell a little six degrees of separation story. And when I sit down, for those of you who don't know, um, I, when I sit down across from a guest, that's when I think of the, the story. I don't think of, I'm not, I'm not like a, you know, a comedian who's writing things down and preparing things. I just go with what comes to me. And, and, and before I tell the story, and I think I'm going to tell two stories that intertwine, I wanted to share with all of you how incredibly grateful I am for all your support and all the emails that you guys have sent and to tell you how absolutely crazy this this hobby that has turned into something a little bit different has been. Normally I thought I was in a bad place with my emails when my emails would be rotating between 500 and 1000 emails and I thought to myself, well this is, you know, this is really bad. I mean, I got to get the handle on this. 
And since this podcast started, uh, I looked in my inbox the other day and there was 8,600 emails in there and hundreds and hundreds and probably thousands of them are from all of you who have said such wonderful and positive things and how the podcast and the guests have really helped you and inspired you, whatever your careers have been. And that, that means so much to me. So thank you. Thank you. And thank you again. On to my story. So I obviously, as you know, represented comedians and I was in a situation where I realized early on that the best way to get to the next level and to end up moving where I wanted to go as a manager and a producer was to align myself with certain talent to where I could also uh, attach myself with them and become an executive producer and move forward in my career that way as opposed to just be somebody who represented talent and, and that's all I did. And there was one person who I became friendly with who I ended up manage, managing with her husband, uh, an actress named Lisa Ann Walter. And Lisa was just a firecracker. She was, you know, all like she was the kind of person who had like the the sass of Kathy Griffin and the sensuality of like Jessica Simpson. She was the kind of person who was just like edgy, crass, and she would just go into a room and take a room. And she did stand-up that really appealed to a lot of people, and she proved that she could book significant acting jobs. And when you're a network president, like Suzanne Daniels was at the WB at the time, your main thing, if you're going to make a development deal with a comedian, you want to hedge your bets and hope that they can act. And Lisa was somebody who could prove that. And they really wanted to work with Lisa. And back then, the development deal for a comic was was really was very competitive. And networks were taking meetings. They were doing everything they could to try to figure out how to get somebody to come to their network. And Suzanne had a difficult task because she was working at a network that was doing amazing things. But those amazing things involved programming that was oriented towards kids and Lisa Ann Walter although she wasn't old she was probably you know in her late 20s or early 30s at the time and it was a demographic that probably Suzanne was trying to move into as sort of a bridge between the young and the old sort of like Les Moonves was trying to figure out a bridge between the old and the young with Ray Romano and so we walked into the meeting and something happened that has never happened, never had happened since and still has never happened to this day in any meeting I've ever taken with an artist. It was quite evident that Suzanne and her team had really gone out of their way to try to figure out a way to impress Lisa that she was the person for their network. And so we walk in the meeting and every single one of these executives who normally are dressed like really really well they're all wearing these t-shirts that say something like i love lisa or something like that so we walk in and they're sitting down and it was just this moment where it was just it was it was so wonderful and humbling but it was very very awkward because you're sitting with the president of the network and they're wearing a t-shirt over their business suit that probably costs like you know twenty seven hundred dollars <laughs> And it was an amazing meeting, and Lisa was her normal self at the meeting, very, very outgoing, and uh, always had this thing where she would 
engage the men who were heterosexual in the room to the point where uncomfortability, but yet funny. And the women would love it because they'd see their peers be taken to task where like they've never seen them before. But ultimately, for some reason, Lisa decided that she didn't want to go with that company and that network. And she ended up going and doing a deal at another network uh, that didn't have as great a meeting as Suzanne put on, that didn't have as great a vibe, that didn't have as much passion. And I think she didn't do that because she felt like, well, would this network be able to service what she was going to do? And when you weigh the pros and the cons about the passion versus what you want to do, does it work? And I tried to impart in her at the time that I wanted her to go to the WB because I felt that if you have a president who's passionate about you, you know, that's the greatest gift in the world because in the end, they're the one that's going to pound on the table when they're watching all the pilots in May and say, hey, this is why you brought me here. This is why I'm here. This is who I want on my air. This is why I'm here. This is my eye and whatever. Those are the people you want. You don't want to go to another network that might offer you a certain amount of money that have your kind of programming, but then they have a ton of programming like that, and they're not as passionate, and then when you do your pilot, they could give a shit about you because they have other people in your age range. But I couldn't convince Lisa and her husband, Sam, of that, and they did another deal, and... It didn't go. But I wanted, I remember taking Suzanne aside and she would probably never remember this And afterwards. And I said, listen, the first chance I get where I find somebody who's special, I'm only making one call and I'm going to have them come there and you're going to have your shot and they're not going to meet with anybody else. And there was a young comedian that I got a tape on that was sent to me by a comedian who'd done the Tonight Show a few times named Phil Tag. And this comedian had opened for him named Frank Caliendo. And so I got this videotape sent to me. I watched it like midnight with the sound off because that's what I always like to do. And it was incredible. And then I turned the sound on and this guy was doing impressions. He was like a baby-faced kind of guy and he closed off with a Chris Farley impression. And it was unbelievable. I called him up and it was probably two in the morning where he was. And I said, listen, I want to represent you. I want you to come to L.A. He said, you don't know me. I, I, I don't think I should come to L.A. I said, come to L.A. I said, give me 48 hours. I will have a television deal for you in 48 hours. And I put him up in this ramshackle hotel on Venice Beach where some guy was singing Bombaleo seven times a day. And the first call I made was to Suzanne and also her head of casting, which at the time was a, an amazing woman named Kathleen Lettery. And I set up a meeting for uh, him to come in. And what normally happens when you're dealing with a president of a network, you know, if they really have confidence in their staff, they don't necessarily care to meet the person right at that moment but if they hear something's going on they might walk in or whatever they just feel it out i brought frank in and i met with him and i said we're gonna get a television deal and we're gonna take this first meeting we're gonna take only one meeting he says what do you mean we're gonna take one meeting?" i said 
well, I can set up other meetings, but I'm going to cancel them after this meeting because I'm going to give them the first shot. He's like, how do I get a television deal? I said, this is how you're going to get a television deal. How many impressions do you do? He said, I can probably do 50. I said, great, we're going to sit here in this hotel room and we're going to work on a five-minute thing that you're going to do in that room with them that we're going to call the five minutes of fury. And you're going to do 50 impressions in five minutes and you're going to blow them the fuck away and you're going to get your deal. He said, what are you talking about? I'm from Waukesha. I don't really have, I don't, I've never done this before or whatever. I said, it doesn't matter. They will see through this that you will be able to walk on a sound stage and act. They will be able to see this. Even though you have no experience, they will know. He goes in, meets with Kathleen Lettery. He does the five minutes of fury. And all I know from my office is I get a phone call. And it's on speaker. And there are like literally 25 people in a room or in the outskirts or the pit of the WB. And I believe it was Suzanne Daniels on the phone on speaker. She said, Barry, um, Frank has been making his rounds around the offices doing the five minutes of fury. And he just did it in the pit here for like, you know, 15 assistants. And we want to make a deal with him right now on the phone and close it right now on the phone. <laughs> and I said, okay, uh, well, uh, and I said, well, let's just, we'll do the deal. I'll cancel all my meetings and we'll make it work and don't worry about it. And because of the passion, I said to Frank, we're going to cancel the meetings, the other meetings. I want to be with these people. Suzanne will get you on the air and you'll figure out a way to get on the air. And I know that. And in the end, uh, true to what happened with Passion, he got on the air with a uh, sketch show called Hype, which uh, although it didn't go the distance, it lasted about 22 episodes in one season. And that was Frank's proving ground and then eventually got hired on Mad TV and the rest is history. So my lesson here for those of you listening is this. If you want to get to the next level, I am a firm believer that Passion with executives at any network or any profession you're in goes much, much farther than the allure of what a place is or what it has to offer or what their history might be. Because to me, if you have people around you who are, you're, who are really passionate, they'll always support you. They will always fight for you. And they'll always be a mentor to you. And they'll always want to figure out a way for a common goal that you want, which is to get to the next level and create moments that will blow people away. Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. Here we go. You fucking firing me up, Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. 
It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I am so excited today uh, after my 67-minute cold open and uh, to have Suzanne Daniels here. And let me tell you a little about her, and you are in for a treat. And this is going to be one of those podcasts where you will want to pass it on. You will want to listen to it over and over again because we're dealing with somebody here I'm sitting across from. You know, normally it's one thing to have somebody who's a network president, which he is, uh, of MTV. But it's another thing to have somebody who's been a network president multiple times. Multiple times. That's that's very rare. That's like uh, craziness. So I'm going to give you the proper introduction. And another thing I want to tell you before I give this proper introduction is I start this paragraph of our first thing of our introduction. What you're going to know from that book that you're supposed to read when you're a teenager, How to uh, Win Friends and Influence People uh, by Dale Carnegie. He says a big part of the book is align yourself with great people. Find the great people or the great places or the or the great situations. You know, if you're a waiter, don't work at the fucking cosmic diner. Work at the Peninsula Hotel. It's the same job. Work with great people. So as I start Suzanne Daniels' introduction... Well, what can I say? She's an award-winning entertainment executive who has developed and produced some of the most memorable series on television. But she started her career as an assistant to an executive producer, a little guy, little-known guy named Lorne Michaels, uh, a genius on Saturday Night Live. She was ultimately promoted the manager of development for his Broadway entertainment and helped develop the Maverick show, the Kids in the Hall comedy series, and was involved also in the box office smash Wayne's World. From there, she went on to oversee specials and a variety of series for ABC, including the Academy Awards, the American Comedy Awards, American Music Awards, and MTV's 10th anniversary special, among others. Following her tenure on ABC, she served as vice president of comedy for Fox Television, where she shepherded their successful Thursday night comedies involving uh, some stand-up comedians named Martin Lawrence in the show Martin and Living Single. Prior to joining MTV, where she is now, she led programming divisions at Lifetime Television, where she was the president there, and the WB Network. 
uh, now the CW. In 1994, she embarked on an incredible run of the WB, generating a string of culture-defining hits, including Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Dawson's Creek, Felicity, Angel, Smallville, Gilmore Girls, Seventh Heaven, and Charmed. From there, Daniels went on to serve as president of Lifetime Television, where she was responsible for all programming on Lifetime and the Lifetime Movie Network and the two highest-rated women's cable television networks during her tenure. While Lifetime, she launched the channel's highest-rated drama series in its history with Army Wives, oversaw the acquisition and redevelopment of reality-hit Project Runway, as well as many Emmy Award-winning original movies and miniseries, which became touchstones for Lifetime. Wow. Daniels was also successful in rebranding and expanding Lifetime Movie Network to full distribution. Before assuming programming position as the president of MTV, Daniels served as a consultant for Oprah Winfrey and numerous other networks, including uh, the OWN network where she's been credited with helping to boost the ratings there. In her current role as president of programming for MTV, she oversees all development and programming for the iconic youth brand which she assumed the post in November of 2012. She oversees scripted reality series, news, documentaries, production, and talent. I must say also that she's an accomplished author. Together with Variety editor Cynthia Littleton, she wrote the season finale, The Unexpected Rise and Fall of the WB and UPN, which the book, you should pick it up on Amazon or wherever books are sold or on the web. It's a comprehensive behind-the-scenes look at the intense rivalry between the two broadcast networks and how they ultimately merged into the CW. She also serves on the prestigious boards of the campaign to prevent teen pregnancy, children's now, and common sense media, among other advisory roles. She's been recognized for numerous humanitarian efforts, which have centered on preventing teen pregnancy and inspiring young women to take positive choices and establish strong role models in media. Uh, she's based here in L.A., where she resides with her husband, a little-known writer, producer, director named Greg Daniels. You might know him from a few minor hits like The Office, Parks and Recreation, and King of the Hill. Can you say a marriage that has won the lottery? Please welcome my guest. It is an honor, finally, to introduce Suzanne Daniels. Thank you for coming. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm so happy that this you're here fun. and you haven't fallen asleep yet. <laughs> this is great fun. I should just do these things in my bathroom before people come and it'd be a lot better. We'd have a lot more time. Can I, re can I react to your introduction about Lisanne Walter for a yes, minute? Yes, please. All right, so I was reliving that as you were talking about it, and um, uh, I I always feel like I know the moment where Lisa Ann Walter decided not to make a deal with the WB and instead go to ABC. Okay, um, which is that I had met with Lisa Ann Walter once and. Um, and I thought the meeting went well, but I didn't close the deal. And I thought, how you know, I've got to convince this woman to come come work with me here. I so maybe I'll have her meet with the CEO. So I asked Jamie Kellner, who was the CEO of the network, if he would uh, meet Lisa Ann Walter. Which you have to understand, normally I never did that. I never include. We just didn't go to Jamie for talent meetings. 
So it was an unusual request. And Jamie said, sure, I'll, I'll, I'll do it. I'll help close the deal. So the meeting was in Jamie Kellner's office and, um, and we were talking to Lisa and it was going well. And we were wearing our, I love Lisa t-shirts. And, and I, th- I thought, you know, I think we're going to get this, um, this talent. I'm so excited. And then Jamie turned to her and, and said to her, so Lisa, you know, let's talk about the character you're going to play. So I'm, um, I'm thinking, what are you, 35, 40? Oh my god! <laughs> I'm telling you, I still remember this moment. And I saw Lisa's face fall, and she said, I'm, I'm not that old. And I thought, I'm going to not get this deal. <laughs> Because Jamie insulted her about her age. She was not happy. She was like, "Uh, uh, some people say I'm 25, 28. Some people say I don't even look 30. So I always felt like that's where that went went wrong. I thought it was was game over the moment Jamie said that. What's amazing is that you feel like, you know, when you're in these positions, you, 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 the whole thing is, you know, as you're an artist, you think to yourself, if I could just have more control. And you as a president, you're thinking, okay, I have the control. I'm going to my CEO. But you don't think when you're going to a person who's the CEO that you have to say, hey, listen, uh, by the way, let me share something with you uh, that you shouldn't do. You never mention a woman's age. <laughs> I don't okay? think he ever made that mistake again. Because oh. after the meeting, I completely called him out on it. <laughs> and and normally, Jamie, I don't know how well you knew him, but he's well. an incredibly charming man. Incredible. And, and uh, you know, it's really, like Peter Roth without the hugs. Right. Peter Roth was really good at convincing people to do things, So yeah, which is why I said, you know, this is important to me. I love Lisa and Walter. You got to do this. And he said, sure, be happy to. But I'm telling you, once he went to for the big 4-0, game over with Lisa and Walter. <laughs> the only thing worse was if she like maybe had like a little stomach, which she didn't, and he would have gone up to her and said, hey, listen, uh, when do you, you do? <laughs> right, exactly. Exactly. What are you, 170, 180 pounds? <laughs> That's so funny. I had forgotten that until now. Now it's just, oh, yeah, she spent like about 10 minutes trying to convince... Uh, us, she, all of us, and she was about 10 years younger than that. <laughs> oh, my God. That's hilarious. <laughs> okay, so what was the moment or where were you in your life when you finally hit you that uh, I want to be in the entertainment business? You know, I grew up watching TV with my family, and we, we really enjoyed watching TV together. And we, we watched L.A. Law and um, my dad's an attorney, a litigator, and it was fun because he'd always sort of call out what would or would not happen. A judge would never say that. That could never happen in court. And and uh, and just that experience made me start to understand that TV dramatized things in certain ways and had that ability to do that because obviously what they were putting on wasn't true because my dad was sitting there telling me it wasn't. And my mom's a psychologist, and um, uh, and so we we watch TV together as a family, and we talk about TV, uh, and I really loved it. And uh, so, besides LA Law, what were some of the other shows you watched as a family? Oh, we, well, I watched a lot. I watched. Well, this is going to date me terribly, but I'll just go for it. Um, the Partridge what do you Family, mean? You're like thirty-five, forty, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm thirty-five, forty, <laughs> exactly. Um, uh, uh, Partridge Family, Brady Bunch. Um, what else did we watch together? Remember that show, James at Fifteen? Yes, oh, loved that show. We talked about that show a lot at. Um, when I was at the WB and obviously made shows, I think that tonally reflected some of what went on in that show. Um, and, uh, 
I kind of, you know, I'm, I, I can't remember now what I watched as a kid versus what I'm remembering of older shows that I just liked, like Get Smart, oh. uh, loved that. Um, you know, there were just, there were so many shows really that the, the monkeys. The monkeys, of uh, course. How great was that? Um, so, uh, I mean, I, I, I've always had a, a really wide variety of interests in, tel- in terms of television shows, which is one of the reasons I really love my job because I get to work on so many different kinds of shows and genres, and I really love them all. I, I, I think I'm known more for the scripted work that I've done, but I am really proud of a lot of the reality shows I've worked on too. And um, and I like reality television a lot, and I, I watch it. I particularly love competition reality. I'm obsessed with The Amazing Race and Survivor still. And um, and uh, at the WB, we had a lot of fun being very playful. And not at the WB, I'm sorry. At MTV, recently, we had a lot of fun being playful with Real World. So Real World, when I got there, had just completed season 27. I know John Murray was a guest here and amazing. He's amazing. He's an amazing producer and amazing man. And so I met with John, who I worked with on Project Runway at Lifetime, and I said, uh, okay, John, you know, you, you basically invented reality television. Uh, we're, we're, you just completed season 27. What do you say we mix it up a little bit? What do you say we, we, we do something different with the real world for season 28, just for fun, season 29? Um, and we're just shooting season 30 right now. And, uh, and he came back with so many good ideas. He's such a creative producer. And we ended up um, uh, doing something called Real World Explosion for season 29. And now we're doing real world skeletons in the closet for season 30, <laughs> which is really fun. So um, uh, I just love all kinds of genres. I always have. I've always watched a lot of them. Um, and I've always been really like a big TV fan. Um, and so you're growing up, you're watching. So what's the next step? Do you go to college and study uh, broadcasting? Well, they didn't they didn't have broadcasting as a major. I went to Harvard and you could you could not major in broadcasting. You know, Reggie Hudlin told me here that he had all this intention getting out of East Sent in St. Louis, going to Harvard and being able to produce his own stuff and do whatever. And then he got there and they had nothing. 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 Yeah, absolutely nothing. Although I believe they have more now there, a growing film department, but it wasn't an opportunity. So I did work on a lot of theater when I was there. Um, and... Uh, and then briefly flirted with the idea of going into theater. But what I really wanted to do was work in television. Um, so uh, my I got I got to Lauren Michaels in a very roundabout way. And I only tell this story because I feel like you're when you were doing your your terrific introduction, it sounded like there's a lot of viewers who are are listening and wanting to break in. And so. Absolutely. Um, there was there was nobody I didn't ask to try and get an introduction to someone in the television business because I we I didn't really have any connections and um, I literally was at a restaurant in New York and overheard two people at the next table talking about a production and just went over there and said please don't hate me for interrupting your dinner but I'm just trying to break in and I heard you talking about a production any chance you need a PA or anything on it. And the guy was nice enough to give me his card. He was working, turned out he was working on a commercial. But when I was trying to break in, there was just no stone unturned, nobody I wouldn't harass. And persistence. And my dad was, uh, 
working on a, on a legal case with another lawyer from a different firm, and he was kind enough to ask him if he knew anybody. And that guy had a friend who his that guy's brother worked at NBC in the news department and told me I could go in for a general with him. And I didn't really know what a general was. <laughs> Why don't you tell our audience what a general is? Well, my advice would be that a general is always an interview, but I didn't know that. And I thought a general just meant, um, we'll just chit chat, but there's no job. But there always could be a job. And you have to treat every meeting like it could be a potential interview. So but true. I, but I didn't. I completely blew it. And I just went in there talking about what I like, which wasn't the news. And the, at the end of the, the meeting, the guy said to me, well, I would never hire you. You don't want to eat, drink, and sleep the news. I only want to hire people who want to eat, drink, and sleep the news. And I thought, well, I've blown it once again. <laughs> Good work, Suzanne. <laughs> um, but then he opened the door that changed my life. I mean, I know that sounds dramatic, but he did. Then he paused and he said, I heard Lord Michaels is looking for an assistant. Would you want me to give your resume to him? I literally almost fell off my chair because there had been a book written about Saturday Night Live, which I had read. Now there's more than one. Now there's multiple books. But at the time, I think there just was one. And I had read it and I knew who Lauren was and I loved Saturday Night Live. And I thought, oh, my God. And I said, yes, I want to, <laughs> you know, please, would you do that? Really? That's the most incredible offer ever. And he sent my resume over and Lauren agreed to interview me. And Lauren kept me waiting for the interview for, God, it was at least two hours. It might have been three hours. So you're sitting outside of his office for two or three hours, the and office that's upstairs that overlooks the, for those of you who don't know, Lauren's office is upstairs on at 8H, the famous eighth floor on at 30 Rockefeller Center floor. And his office has like a sliding glass door out to the audience, a seated audience and overlooking the entire stages of Saturday Night Live. And there's a conference room right outside of his office. So I sat in that conference room, which was fascinating and kind of scary and intimidating all at the same time, because during those two or three hours, it was a working week. You know, stars of the show were coming in and out to meet him, Al Franken and Kevin Nealon and Dana Carvey and knocking on his door. And so, I mean, I, on the one hand, I didn't mind waiting because it was just just fascinating place to be. Um, but on the other hand, I was getting more and more and more nervous. I was working, you know, working myself up into quite a tizzy. <laughs> it's interesting you said that because obviously nerves and success don't go together, but you, you must have pulled it together. Yeah. I, you know, I'm, it, that interview is really a little bit of all of a blur right now because well, I'm just I, so. I'm hoping you'll, I'm hoping you'll <laughs> unblur it because it's the kind of thing that really is very impactful when you're going in for your first thing. And again, you're meeting with a guy who is clearly at another level on a show that's at another level and you have to, you know, he's kept you waiting for two or three hours and you have to go in there fresh. It's like almost like an athlete out, you know, not in the game. And then he's finally asked to go in the game. And so I honestly don't remember what questions he asked me, but I do remember telling him how enthusiastic I was, you know, about the opportunity and how much it would mean to me and how I couldn't think of any better job to do. It was, would be a dream come true. So I do, excuse me, remember really expressing my enthusiasm. Um, and I talked to him about the book because I had read the book about Saturday Night Live. And I you did your research. So I did my research. People love it. You know, it's amazing when I sit down here and I have the interviews with people. If they have a book, if I read the book and I can pull out things of the book, it's like it, it means the world to people because it lets them know that you really care 
right. and you're really invested in something, and a lot of people don't do that. So did he tell you in the room that you got the gig? No. No. Um, now, I, when you left the office and you got on the subway or wherever you were, did you say to yourself, I got this gig? Not at all. No, I really didn't know. And uh, so I was, I had, I had moved home after college. So I was living with my folks and uh, it was a few days later that they called me. I was on my parents' couch watching Jeopardy. (laughs) Seriously. (laughs) And the phone rang and, uh, and they told me I got the job and I was just so excited. Incredible. Incredible. That's such an awesome story. And, you know, I look at this year and I I see that, um, you know, Lorne Michaels has had a lot of assistance. A lot of assistants has worked with him, but you know, how many assistants do you think have actually been promoted to be the manager of development for his production company? Yeah, I don't know. It was a great opportunity. He was great to work for. I mean, it was a phenomenal three years. And but you may you must have done things that made him feel like almost like Radar O'Reilly made uh, <laughs> the corporal whatever. What his a name great was analogy! Oh, I don't know if I was that good as Radar, but. Um, uh, I loved working there and I loved working for him. And uh, the biggest takeaway for me for the three years that stayed with me, I think, for my whole career was that attention to detail is important because um, Lauren would, and I'm sure still to this day does, change things that might appear to sound and feel minor when I say them in sketches. So there'd be dress rehearsal Saturday and I'll just never forget my whole life. Um, uh, Can I just say this for those of you who don't know about Saturday Night Live, how it works, because I think this is important. On Mondays, what happens is you come and you take a meeting and you meet with the host of the week that, that week and all the writers and the staff meet with him. And you uh, pitch him ideas and all these ideas. You go around the table, ideas, whatever. And then throughout that week, that Monday night, you're writing all night, all into the night. And, and, and I think Tuesday at the time. And then you submit your sketches up until I think Tuesday at like 9 a.m. or something. And then on a Wednesday, you sort of get the word whether your stuff is going or not. And then you start developing things and you start blocking and taping on Thursdays. And then... On Friday, you do a little more blocking and taping, I believe, and the musical act uh, can come in there as well, sometimes a day earlier. And then on Saturday, you're working throughout the day, also working, rehearsing the sketches, and you do a dress rehearsal in front of a live audience at around 7.30 in the evening with all the sketches that have made it in. And there's normally about, I'm going to say, 20 to 30 minutes of sketches and pieces additional oh at least could get at least 30 show. minutes additional yeah every week and so you have a two-hour dress rehearsal and then in between shows Lorne closes himself in his office with the performers and the writers and they're all sitting on the floor and all over the place and he'll decide which things are going at that point in time and, you and what either... makes the live 90 minute show yeah. right exactly so, so um, when I worked for him I'm going to date myself again there was there was no email I'm sure they do it differently now but I was one of uh, uh, several assistants on Saturdays um, because they, we needed them because Lauren every sketch would happen and Lauren would say after a sketch um, okay tell uh, the the director tell Dave the director to um, you know uh, change the way the camera angle is on Jan Hooks and then and then someone would write that down and run it you'd literally run it over to 
to the director and then he'd give a lighting design or costume design note and and he'd say I don't want um, you know Victoria Jackson in a, a tutu I want her in a ball gown and you'd run that over and they'd change the costume and and I, I remember thinking when I first started working for him really you're gonna change the hat that you know Phil wears in this sketch and it's gonna be funnier um, but all of his changes would enhance the sketch. The sketch was always better. And it was so interesting to see. Um, you know, I, I still remember, and maybe this is why my, my, I haven't developed as many, uh, quote unquote, <laughs> iconic comedies as I have dramas. And this will be telling because I still remember the Wayne's World sketch. It was the last sketch of the night and it aired. And I remember watching it, thinking, which, which 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 normally means in Lauren's mind, and and if you were sitting here, he probably could he could possibly disagree with me, but I don't believe he does. If the sketch is the last sketch of the night, that normally means that they have the least amount of confidence in it, because as the ratings go, you'd, you'd think like in a if you go to a stand up comedy show at a comedy club or a theater. Normally, the act that goes on first is the least experienced and the least good, and whatever in the last act is the big thing. But in television, the ratings go down. It, they, well, especially later in the night. Yeah, so they, they start off big in the beginning, and then they go down and down and down until the very end. Until like, it's 1 a.m. Until it's 1 a.m. And five minutes of one, there's nobody watching, so you want to put on your weakest sketch then. So, uh, so Wayne's World airs um, with Mike Myers, and I literally... Barry remember thinking to myself, well, that won't be back. <laughs> that was my reaction. That was the worst thing I've ever seen. <laughs> Cut to next week. I think it's the first sketch coming back. And which is why working for Lauren was so fascinating because he really is a genius and it's not hype. And he just has, he just knows. He knows. Tell our audience the greatest piece of advice that Lauren ever gave you or that you saw him give anybody else that's just stayed with you to this day? Oh, that's interesting. Um, you know, I think it wasn't a specific piece of advice, but it was, I think one of the things that stayed with me to this day is Lauren's extremely loyal to the people who work for him. And Jim Downey's still there. Look at the look at the people who are still there, right? Leo Yoshimura. Yeah. I mean, so many of them are still there and have worked for him for years. And he's very loyal and he's very respectful and he's very good to his team. And his team, I think, you know, really reveres him. And he has created a work family. And, you know, you don't always have that in life and in the workplace. And, um, uh, to watch that and haven't been a part of that and seen that, I I think that gave me some direction as to how to work with and treat um, my programming teams over the years. Yeah, absolutely. So you go on to uh, his company, which was Broadway Entertainment at the time and turned into Broadway Video. And you actually developed the uh, and worked on developing the Kids in the Hall comedy series. Well, as uh, you know. As a low-level executive, I did. I, you know, wasn't lead on it. I was 
22 or whatever I was. That's okay, but you were there when that was happening. I was, was there. Yeah, thing. it was so fun and funny. And was it weird uh, um, being a part of something that was sort of like a single camera version of Saturday Night Live and a, a weird alternative universe? It was, and I didn't, I certainly, for me, it was just all, it was all gravy. It was all good. It was just so exciting. Everything I worked on was so exciting, and in, including that. And uh, those guys were so talented, that group of um, actors, comedians from Canada. Um, so I loved working on it, and I, I thought what they were doing was brilliant. Really different from SNL in terms of the kind of comedy they were doing, um, which was a great opportunity again and fun it so for me looking back on it it was just interesting that you know lauren appreciated all the different kinds of comedy that he did and worked on all the different kinds of projects that he did and so you're also working on wayne's world a sketch that you thought was now did you ever go up to the guys and take them aside even as a young low-level executive and said you know i have to tell you uh i just never uh, never <laughs> never never admitted it <laughs> That's all. Now, when you were watching the filming of the movie and you're watching the dailies, which I'm sure you saw, which are, for those of you who don't know, the dailies are the uh, the daily video or posts of, of each scene of what has been shot in each take of each scene. Did you look at it and say, boy, this could be a big hit in the movies or did you think it would do poorly in the movies. No, I knew enough by that point. Well, first of all, I knew enough by that point not to, you know, not to assert my <laughs> opinion on whether that movie was going to be a hit or not. Um, but uh, by the time dailies came around, I was already working for ABC. So I was involved in sort of the, I got to attend the initial pitch with Bonnie and Terry Turner at Paramount. And Bonnie and Terry Turner, who also created Third Rock from the Sun. Yes. I and they were SNL writers who Lauren brought in to write Wayne's World. Right. And so you're at ABC now, and now you're going in that lane of Saturday Night, but you're doing big, big, you're working on big, big variety, special events. Special events. Uh, what was it like working on the Academy Awards? Like, who was hosting that year? Oh, my goodness, Barry, you're like, you're testing my memory. I'm I should have, I feel like I should have gone back and like. <laughs> I always say as a guy, there's two things that go when you get older and there's only a pill for one of them. <laughs> <laughs> um, I can tell you it was the year that Jack Palance did the push-ups. <laughs> now, was that orchestrated or was that something that just no, happened? No, that was not orchestrated. That was not orchestrated at all. That was a surprise. Um, a great surprise. Um, and I can tell you that Tom Cruise was there with Nicole Kidman. So we can we can date it by that. That's right. We can. So that's good. So you're working on those things. It's great. It was exciting to work on those specials. They were big special events. And, they, you know, um, I worked for a really smart, experienced man, Barry, who I'm sure you knew, John Hamlin. Yes. Yeah, so well, I didn't know him that well, but I knew of him. So John ran the specials department and he had done so for a very long time. And and really knew what he was doing. And um, uh, he was very direct about what he wanted and really knowledgeable and pretty demanding. And it was a great experience to, to see that. And, um, to, you know, people would walk in and pitch uh, shows and they'd say, you know, we want to do, um, uh, let's see, um, Muhammad Ali's 50th birthday special. That's a special we did. We want to do that. And John would say, who you got? 
who, who, who's going to show up? Who, you know, come back to me when you have a list of who's going to show up, what a talent is going to line up and be on that special and say happy birthday. And if I like them, you can have the special. And if I don't, you can't. It was pretty, it was pretty black and white. And I really did learn a lot from that. And so then you got into the scripted department at Fox. How did that happen? I didn't yeah, even ABC to Fox. I'm very grateful to Tom Noonan for giving me that opportunity. Tom so Tom had been at ABC when I was at ABC in the Movies of the Week division. And I never thought he'd hire me because I think he talked his way into getting that job to be head of comedy for Fox when he was at, from MOWs. So when MOWs I MOWs for you, those of you, was Movie of the Weeks. So I was so certain that I heard he was looking for for somebody, a director in his level, person in his department, and I I put myself up for the job, but I thought it was a huge long shot because I thought he is going to want to hire someone who has worked on comedies before because he hasn't. Um, but somehow he took a shot with me, which I really appreciated. Maybe it's because I had that experience working for Lauren at Saturday Night Live. I'm not sure, but um, he gave me the shot and we had fun and we worked on, um, we worked with Martin Lawrence. Now that was the first time in your career where you actually rallied around one comedian to do like a development situation yeah that's true and martin was hot at the time because he was the host of if i'm not mistaken def jam and he had done like four years or three years doing that and um god i don't know why i'm just thinking about this but the first <laughs> i have you have these memories of crazy things and the first def jam ever the first def jam comedy jam was martin lawrence hosting it was Bill Bellamy where he created the line booty call. He did the booty call bid. Wow. It was Adele Gibbons oh. who did that line where the heck. I think I had a holding deal with Adele Gibbons, did. didn't I? Right. Where the, where the heckler said uh, to her something like blow me. And she said blowing you would be like throwing a whale a Tic Tac. <laughs> I tell you something, I never saw a standing ovation in the middle of a show before. And then Bernie Mac went on and said, I ain't scared of you motherfuckers. That was the show, the four people. How crazy is that? So you, you rally around Martin. You decide that he's the guy that you think is going to be able to carry a television show. And I remember this very well because NBC at the time decided that they were going to rally around the comedian to develop for a television show. And they were going to go head to head with Martin Lawrence. And that was Roger Cabler in oh. Rhythm and Blues. Wow. The Impressionist. I that. Yeah. And it was a big thing because they were going right up against each other and toe to toe and true to form uh, Martin blew away the competition. So tell me about what it was like working with Martin and then how it started and then what the process was like with him as an artist. Well, Martin was great. Um, I came into, I started at Fox when they had just shot the pilot. Mm -hmm. um, and I loved the pilot. Tom asked me what I thought of it and I loved it and I loved Martin. So um, I worked on the first season of mm -hmm. the show um, and uh, as an executive and you know, John Bowman was running it, and of he's course. a really talented comedy writer and a really smart guy. And he Ooh, I did a show with John Bowman and Frank Kellyanne, though it comes full circle, there Frank TV. There you go. Um, 
So they had a really strong vision for what they wanted. And Martin had a lot of strong ideas, too. Um, and then we, what we started doing right away is, is we had a sense right away that this show was going to be solid and work. So because it came out of the gate strong. So we immediately started looking for a companion piece for it. So that next year, we made a holding deal with Queen Latifah. We made a holding deal with Kim, Kim Coles. We didn't initially... Uh, make holding deals with them for them to be in a show together. But then Yvette Lee Bowser came in and started talking to us about a show idea. Yvette Lee Bowser at the time, one of the greatest uh, executive producers of the time, had a lot of uh, power at the, uh, during that time, did some great work. And she created Living Single. And we asked Kim and Queen Latifah Dana if they would both be in her show. And they both agreed. And they both liked the script and they liked Yvette. And uh, and that pilot tested really well and ended up being a great companion piece for Martin. And there was a block on Thursday nights. Which had never been there before. And, you know, uh, Sandy Grushaw uh, did the show and he said that one of the biggest things about Fox that was the mantra was contrarian television put things on that were diametrically opposite of the things on the other networks and let it ride. That's interesting. And so um, what was the next step for you in the business? Um, well, uh, I got a call while I was working at Fox from Garth and Sear. And Garth and I had worked together because when I was at ABC, we did this sketch comedy pilot together. And the sketch comedy pilot was really loud and um, really inappropriate for ABC. It really should have been developed for Fox. And uh, Garth was coming from Fox where he'd been an executive, um, developed 21 Jump Street and worked on The Simpsons, the Tracy Ullman show. And he had an overall deal with Fox. And he he came to me. I met him at ABC when he was a producer. And we did this sketch comedy show where uh, there was a dating scene. There was a dating sketch where, you know, women were dating goats. And unfortunately, during management screenings, Management screenings are when you take all the pilots and you bring in all the heavy brass from the corp, you know, from corporate, and they come in and they, the head of sales and the the heads of the of of ABC, and at the time they were um, uh, they were owned by Capital Cities, and uh, so I I I'm sitting down in the back of this auditorium <laughs> we're about to screen my my pilot and that Dan Burke and Tom Murphy who own Cap Cities and are, and are running it and and which owns ABC sort of slip in last minute and sit down next to me right when we started screening <laughs> and I remember hearing them this is really a true story I remember one of them turned to the other and said what the hell is this show? What, you know, who, who thought this was right for our network? And I just sort of like slumped down in my seat. I thought, how can I get out of here? How fast can I get out of here? Um, uh, and so that's how I knew Garth. So Garth called me and Garth had been tapped to help develop this new network for Warner Brothers, the WB, and said, want to, want to have dinner, want to have lunch or dinner. And, and can I tell you what I'm doing? And I was really like Garth and thought he was an exceptionally smart guy wonderful to this day. Guy. And he's a wonderful guy. The first time I met him, uh, he took me in his office and I'm sitting in his office and I and there's like a monitor on his office and I hear like these noises and it sounds like a television production and he's on the phone taking calls. I have no idea what's going on here. I mean, it's so noisy. I have no idea what's happening. 
and I've never seen anything like this where you're, you know, guy, you're sitting there waiting for a meeting and there's all this noise and it sounds like people are, you know, it's cut. Okay, act, go. All right, let's do a lot of the applause. Let's run. Let's go. And he's on the phone talking to somebody else and I, and, and it hangs up the phone. He says, okay, uh, I'm coming over to meet with you now. And I said, can I just see what's going on? And I walk around his desk and on his desk, he has a huge monitor that has the split screen, the four split screen of the Ricky Lake show being taped in New York. And he is executive producing the television show from his desk. Yes, and running the WB. And running the WB. Yes. That was the deal because he had already been executive producing the show. And the only way Sony would let him come over to Warner Brothers and do this is if he still produced it to this day a partner I, to this day i've never seen that happen in the business yeah he did a great job that was a great that show ran for 11 seasons crazy yeah yeah i loved working with garth so, so i he hired was, you as what position i don't remember what i started at I, I i well i think what happened was he and jamie he had me meet with jamie kellner too the ceo and he and jamie offered me head of comedy development and I, this is how I remember it. I remember thinking, well, I'm at Fox. This network looks like it's going to make it, <laughs> right? Because at that point, we were in, Fox wasn't on seven nights a week yet, but it was on its way. And it, people really felt like uh, Rupert Murdoch had bought the NFL. You know, P, P, he, he, he also had, while I worked for him, he also had um, acquired the CBS owned and operated station group. So they're called the O&Os. Yeah. And that was on the cover of the New York Times. So now Fox was 100% coverage of the country. And... I had the NFL. I had I had a Fox sticker on my <laughs> car, and I pulled in to get gas, and the gas station attendant was like, "Yeah, Fox, NFL," and uh, and I felt like Fox is gonna. I'm at a network that's gonna make it. I'm gonna jump to to who knows what network that isn't on the air at all that I have to help get on the air, and for the same job, I don't think so. So I called Garth and Jamie back and said, "I'll come, but you gotta you gotta give me a bit better job." Like, I think I want to do drama development, too. And they called they didn't call me back for two weeks. I think I think two weeks later, they thought we're not going to get anybody else. <laughs> I think I think that's what it was. I well, think when, it was like, when your logo is the frog, right, their logo is the frog. <laughs> like how many nobody ho- else is going to t- go on this ride with us. We better let her do it. Um, and I, you know, ironically, that's really how I got drama development, where I did better as a programming executive, um, proved to you know, be more successful than comedy development. So there you have it. It was an incredible run of so many shows. Uh, wh- what was the first show that hit that you were like, holy shit, I'm on my way. I can do drama just as well as I can do comedy or variety. I think probably Dawson's Creek. I think Dawson's Creek. Dawson's Creek was just got so much media attention. Even though the highest rated show for the 10 years I was at the WB was Seventh Heaven, Dawson's Creek was the show that was sort of the media darling. And Buffy, too. Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Now, you're in the rooms when the casting is happening at the end, when the tests are happening. And for those of you who don't know, uh, when you're working on a show like this, you're you're casting for all these actors and actresses and you normally narrow it down to, well, in those days you had to have at least three choices for each role. Sometimes you had as many as five or in a a crazy situation, 
a little bit more, but normally three to five. And what happened is these actors would have to sign their contracts ahead of time for six or six and a half, seven years of what they're going to make. So the network didn't say, we want you. And they'd say, oh, wait a second, I want more money. And so you were in the room when James Vanderbeek tested and against other people. You were in the room when all these actors tested. And in the end, what happens is this crazy thing where the producers, everybody watches it, and then they leave the room, and then everybody turns. It's like E.F. Hutton. They turn to the president of that work wondering what they think. And so I can't get into all of it because we'd spend all show on this. But tell me, like, one decision on your casting of any one of these shows, from Dawson's Creek to Smallville to Gilmore Girls to whatever is Seventh Heaven, tell me one casting decision you made where you were like, this is my person, and other people in the room were like, Suzanne, uh, you know, I, I, we, I respect you, but I, that's not the person. And you stuck with it, and it that person became a huge star. But consequently, tell me another one where you fought for somebody hard, you did the pilot, and it was like evident that that person didn't have it, and you had to bring somebody else in. Um, well, I would love to tell you two anecdotes like that, because <laughs> they sound like they'd be really interesting. <laughs> um, I, I... I tend to, and I still am like this. I I tend to want to know how the whole group responds to everybody, and am not extraordinarily dogmatic about having to have my choice. Um, I can tell you a lot of interesting casting stories. I can tell you that um, the first time I saw tape on Carrie Russell, she had come off an Aaron, a failed Aaron Spelling show for NBC. Kathleen Lettery came in my office, showed me tape, and said, "This is Felicity," and I said that girl is not Felicity. That girl is awful. That hairdo is awful. She wore her hair really big. So it was about Carrie Russell and hair. My whole experience with Carrie Russell was hair. And this is what I loved about your relationship with Kathleen, because Kathleen never walked on eggshells, but she didn't have the personality that was even, she didn't seem like she would be the personality that got angry but she had this voice about I'm talking about a voice with my voice, but she had this voice that would just wear you down. And 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 she didn't fear anybody because I think she knew she was great at what she did. Oh, so great. And the so she would taste. go toe to toe with you. Oh, in a heartbeat. In a heartbeat. She she just looked at me and said, well, you're completely wrong. And you'll see when I bring her in. And then she came in and J.J. Abrams loved her and I loved her. and But I couldn't see it on that tape but when she came in and read i could see it alternately and i, I could see it immediately with jj uh with um uh, uh james vanderbeek too the minute he walked in all of us thought okay that's dawson fantastic great he's here we finally have him um but there were other cases like katie holmes i remember thinking i don't know i don't know she's cute i don't know but the guys in the room when she, after she walked out, the guys in the room said, "Oh my God!" And they and they and I watched them all react to her and was like, "She's unbelievable. She's beautiful <laughs> and sexy." And I was like, "Oh, she is. Okay, great." 
fine. She can she can she can be Joey. Um, and then Sarah Michelle Gellar originally tested for the role of Cordelia in Buffy, and we didn't have a Buffy. And I think it was Peter Roth who said, "Let's bring that one back. Let's bring Sarah back and have her read for Buffy." And we all thought, oh, Peter wants <laughs> Peter wants us to. All right, we will. Um, and then she came in, and she, I mean, she and she, she actually, I think she, as I recall, she asked to come in the next day. She wanted to prep. She didn't want to. Sometimes you ask actors to do a different role. That's right. And they asked. do it right away. And they're and she didn't want to. And she prepped. Sarah had, had a lot of experience as an actress already. She'd been on a, a soap opera, and she prepped and came back the next day, and she was fantastic. Um, but recently. We have a show called Faking It, which just premiered a second season on MTV. And recently um, on that show, when we cast that show, uh, there's two leads in that show. And um, that was a situation where um, uh, one of them tested uh, for for another role. And it was actually my suggestion to bring her back for this other role that she ended up getting. So, um, but I think I've learned over the years to try that when you see something in someone, but it's just not clicking in the part, but you think they're an interesting actor. You think to yourself, well, how else could we use this? actor?" And I don't, I don't want to keep going with this, but I have to, there's one more thing about this because this was a time where there were just so many young, great people, you know, it's just incredible. I mean, you're training under Lauren Michaels. You created an incredible group of young performers. You broke all these stars. You, the WB at that time was like the Saturday Night Live for young artists. Now, well, no one's ever said that to me. That's a really interesting. Oh, that's thought. that's your lineage from that. That's what it was. List all the people who no one knew off the top of your head. Out of that group, you already mentioned five of them. Right. James Vanderbeek, um, Sarah Michelle Geller, Sarah Michelle Geller's uh, best friend, Allison Hannigan. Yeah, I remember was that. Was in Buffett. Uh, you had Smallville, which... Uh, Smallville, right. Um, I'm working with the executive producers from Smallville right now, um, uh, Miles Goff and... Um, Miles Miller and Al Goff, sorry. Um, they created Smallville and we're developing a new show with them right now at MTV. It's all about the relationships. Yeah. So you're doing all this great stuff at the WB. You're changing the face of television. I mean, literally, like, everything's blowing up there. What happens? What are the circumstances with you leaving? Why do you leave something like that where you did, things are going so well? That's a great question. Um, it was a painful decision to leave after 10 years. Um, but one of the reasons I left was that um, after Bob Daly and Terry Semmel, who were chairman of Warner Brothers, left, I began to feel that there wasn't as much of a commitment to the network as there was when they were there. And uh, after the merger between Warner Brothers, Warner's and, and Turner, Ted Turner was extremely vocal about the fact that he felt that Warner Brothers should buy NBC and uh, and he wanted NBC and he would constantly be saying, you know, we, sh we, we shouldn't be in the WB business. So much so that he was so loud and vocal about it that I had to do a song and dance with studios to convince them to work with me at that time and finance shows because so 20th was financing Buffy and uh, Sony was financing Dawson's Creek 
and there are partners and they felt, well, if Ted Turner is going to pull the plug on this network, why would we want to finance a show? Because we can't get to syndication, which was what the business model was all about. The can't, business model of getting a hundred episodes, getting sold in syndication at the 212 markets across the country or as many as you can get. So I began to, I didn't, I didn't uh, certainly have a premonition that they were going to merge with UPN, but I did start to feel less of a, that the network was less of a priority than as it had felt like the first, particularly the first five years to um, management. And that was part of the reason I left. So when you're, I mean, when you're at the top of the, your game, You've passed a lot of people on your way and who were there for a long time and, and, and did great things. You're there. You're doing the great stuff. Is it a situation where you leave and you don't – because when you leave a company, it's like in any job. If you leave, you don't get shit. If you get fired, <laughs> you get everything. Because, yeah. you know, but if you leave under your own volition, it's like, hey, you left the package. You, you know, Here's the stock package. You're leaving it. Uh, you're doing this and what – it's true. I got to figure out how to get fired. <laughs> You're absolutely well, right. I could teach you a lot about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you move on to what after that? It was Lifetime. And uh, I worked at Lifetime. And uh, I remember my first day, Ted Harbert, who was at E, called who, me up. Who's now uh, running NBC Universal. Yes, he's chairman of NBC Universal. He's a great guy. And he uh, was one of my bosses at ABC. And uh, Ted called me up when I got to Lifetime and said, welcome to cable. You're going to love cable. The cable <laughs> business is fantastic, and, which I really appreciated. And I did love working in cable. And cable is a different animal. And one of the first things that was different about it that I noticed was at broadcast networks where I had been, ABC, Fox, and the WB, we were only concerned ourselves with prime time. Our jobs were to worry about three hours a night of primetime television. Um, but when you're in the cable business, you're looking at the 24-7 numbers. You're looking at total day. You're looking at what what repeats well. It's a different model. And, um, that, and that was really interesting for me to learn that. And again, you came in and true to your lineage and your history, um, you came up with their highest rated drama series in history, which was Army Wives. Well, Mark Gordon, so here's what happened. So I got there and I thought, okay, you know, I really, I need a, I need, I need product. I, you know, and, and it's hard, development takes a long time. And so my first thought was, I'm going to read what's out there with the networks haven't picked up. I'm going to, I'm going to start reading failed. I'm going to call all the agents and all the producers and say, what do you have that you developed at a network that the network passed on? Which is very rare because people don't do that often. Normally you have to convince somebody to, to do that. It's very rare for a president or somebody involved in the network to, to call up and say, tell me what you have that failed. And Mark Gordon said, I Mark have this Gordon, script. Mark Gordon, a great film and television producer. He is. Uh, said, I have the script called Army Wives. You should read it. And I read it. And so it was a script that hadn't it. been done a pilot. It was a script that had been developed at ABC that ABC had passed on. Mm -hmm. So I loved it. And I really felt that it had a voice that wasn't on TV, which is something I think about a lot. What, 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 is, a, what is a point of view that is not reflected on television already? Um, like something I rarely develop is a cop show or a law show because it just feels so 
done to me. I had a huge, uh, I don't know if it's an argument, but discussion on one of these podcasts about Brooklyn Nine-Nine. I just, I just didn't get, I, I, I said that, you know, Andy Sandberg, you can pick anything. You could pick anything to do. Um, they're going to do it with them. There's there's a thousand ideas, and he decides to pick a show that's a cop show. Now, granted, there's original elements of the cop show, but it's still it's like I just I never understood that. I never I never could figure that out why the network wants to do a cop show, and why he wants to do a cop show. Well, there's a history of comedy cop shows, and there wasn't one on the air at the time he did it. That's true. Um. Uh, and he got to work with uh, Mike Schur and Dan Gore, and they're really talented. Fantastic. Um, but uh, but the Army Wives had a point of view that never. Yeah, I just felt that really felt fresh. So I called Mark and I said, I want to do this. And Mark said, OK, only one problem. ABC still controls the rights. <laughs> so I really owe Steve McPherson one because I called Steve McPherson up and I just begged. I just begged. I was like, Steve, I got nothing. Nothing. There's nothing here. The cupboards are bare. I got nothing. And I'm looking at like a long road to recovery. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm begging you to release this. And Steve said to me, here's were exact words. Knock yourself out. <laughs> and I was like, God bless you. He was a great guest here, too. God bless you, Steve McPherson. Um, You'd think he would have asked for peace. Well, it was controlled by ABC Studios. Mark oh, Gordon had an overall deal at ABC Studios. Uh -huh. So in a way, he didn't have to. Got it. Because um, uh, that's what Steve talks about so often is how they gave up pieces to huge, huge hits at ABC. That, you know, like CSI, they gave up the production piece to CSI. Oh, that's interesting. They didn't pick up the show, and but they still had 50% of the rights of the studio, and the studio gave that up. So that's why I'm saying it's it's odd that he would give it all up. But anyway. But yes, but in a way, but he they wasn't had it doing the studio. ABC Studios had yeah. it. Right, exactly. Um, and and so that, uh, that was the highest rated show, I think, to this day for, uh, for a lifetime. It was an incredible hit right out of the box. It was And Mark and his team, Deb Spira, they just did such a phenomenal job. And so then in terms of reality, Project Runway, was that your first reality show you ever got going that, that really, really you felt was a huge juggernaut? Well, I didn't obviously create it, but that's a fun story because Harvey Weinstein walks in my office to basically try and sell me every movie that he can't sell to anybody else. <laughs> and he's got like 50 movies he's peddling, you know, and that, that, he, that he can't get arrested with, that he's trying to, I know, Lifetime will buy him. And, you know, he's, he's, he's doing a song and dance about all of his, his movies. And he stands up to leave. The meeting's finished. And I say to him, this is exactly how this happened. I say, how's my favorite show on TV? How's Project Runway? And he says, Project Runway is your favorite show? Do you want it? <laughs> and I said, do I want it? It's the highest rated show on Bravo. How could I have it? And he said, oh, because <laughs> I've never said this publicly, but what the heck? He said, uh, well, because Lauren Zelaznik hates me. And I hate her. <laughs> so uh, so if you want, maybe we can make a deal. But you're going to have to buy some of my movies. And Lauren at the time was in Bravo. <laughs> Lauren, who, by the way, I love and respect and I think is terrific. But, the, you know, and who would, I think, acknowledge the mutual hatred. Um, uh, so and that's how that deal came about. That's incredible. So another 
your two biggest hits on the network are ones that you get from other sources. Right. Exactly. That's, that's part of my job. That's crazy. That's crazy. So next, you so you're doing well there. You're kicking ass. You got these original movies like uh, Burning Bed Part Seven. I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm no, kidding. the biggest movies we did at Lifetime, Peter Goober brought me. They were great. <laughs> um, Peter got the rights to Nora Roberts books. Mm -hmm. Nora Roberts is one of the biggest selling authors in America today still um, remarkable and she'd never given up the rights to any of her books for movies and she has just a huge following particularly of women and uh, he got Nora Roberts to give him the rights and we bought four movies we all Ultimately, I bought four more right after the first four aired because they were so successful. Now, what's interesting is like when you buy movies for uh, a network like Lifetime, it's different than buying movies for, you know, that come out in the theaters. You're making deals to produce these movies. They're being produced in Canada. You're you're pulling favors. You're doing local hires. You Yeah, you get your star. And you pay them a certain amount of money, but they don't make as much normally as 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 in a in a regular movie. And if I'm not mistaken, these movies can be made. I don't know if back then it was the case, but they could be made between one and five million dollars. Correct. The majority of our movies were made between two point five and five million. There you go. I feel like a prophet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's like a very you know it's not it, it's a good model. It's like a, I'm sure a lot of people in the film business wish they could have that model in the theaters, but but they don't. Uh, incredible. So you, so things are going great there, and lo and behold, your whole your whole winning formula here, your whole pattern is kick ass someplace. <laughs> And, and get then, the heck and then out. get the fuck out of get there out before, before it goes bad. Before it goes bad. <laughs> exactly. Don't you ever get fired? <laughs> I, well, now I'm gonna try. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll talk about MTV because if it, I, let's I've see if I can get fired from MTV. I don't know of anybody Could who's happen. been a president of MTV who hasn't gotten fired. <laughs> right. You? Exactly. You know what? No. So I think there's a good chance that I'll have to come back on this show and <laughs> talk about getting fired. But you're doing well when you decide to move on. Now you decide to move on and be, what's the next thing you do? You're a consultant for uh, Oprah Winfrey. And how did that happen? Why do you leave a place you're successful to be a consultant? Are you just tired of the whole thing? I was. Tired of being president for the seventh time? I was tired. I was. And I felt like I wanted to be a mom for a little while. I have four kids. So, um, you know, I... I went to this women's conference um, that Maria Shriver, when um, Arnold was governor, Maria Shriver ran these women's conferences that were incredibly popular. And she held one in Long Beach. And I went to go, I went to it and I went to this panel. Willow Bay was the moderator. And there was a woman on the panel who um, ran like a big oil company and had kids. And Willow said to her, uh, how do you Willow, balance Willow? Willow Bay? Oh, got it. Said, how do you how do you balance work with your kids? You're a mom too, and this woman said something that really resonated with me. She said, I hate the word balance. She said, oh, balance suggests equal time. There's no equal time when you're a working mother. That's baloney. You work a lot, and then if you're lucky, you can take some time and find some time and take vacation and and try and give your weekends to your kids. But there's no there's you know balance is a completely unfair word to use for mothers because you don't really get balance. And I found that 
very freeing because I thought she's absolutely right. And of course, none of us feel like we get balance because we don't as working moms. Um, so ultimately, my way of achieving balance was actually to take a break. And uh, and I was lucky enough to have this consultant job, which I really enjoyed um, working for Sherry Salata and Eric Logan and Oprah um, at the channel for a year. And it was sort of a chance to um, I worked there three days a week and it was a chance to be a mom for a while, part time. And I really enjoyed it and um, and and loved getting a chance to meet and know Oprah, who is all that, who is all she seems to be. Wow. And so you're consulting and doing all that. And then do you get a call from, yes, uh, from, from Van Toffler? Yes. From Van Toffler, who, yes. uh, who used to be a legal business affairs guy for the company 20 years ago. And, and runs the music group at MTV now. Yeah. Now he's the head of, uh, of all things. So he calls you up. Yeah, and, and says, and this is after David Janilari, who's a friend of yours, I believe, was yeah. was uh, the president of the network, and lasted about. Uh, he was a guest on the podcast too. I think he lasted a couple of years. Um, what is it about the network? I want to say this the right way, but I think I could say this if Van Toffler were here. You figure out who's at the top. And how it's going and why it's going. And, you know, nobody looks at MTV and says, this isn't, this is horrible or this show is that or whatever. Nobody, nobody does that. But the point is, is that there's this amazing rotation. It's like coaching the Oakland Raiders. It's like it's just this turnover of executives over and over and over again. And why do you think that is? And do you think that has something to do with the fact that... Howard Stern used to say when, when I remember when he interviewed John Stewart when he got the MTV job, the the show on MTV, mm -hmm. John's first show. TLC and, was that TLC? No, it was the one with Howard uh, Feller as the co-host. It was the John Stewart show. It was oh, right, right before right. the day. And John went on Howard Stern. He was so excited, you know. I meant TRL. I'm sorry. TRL. No, yeah. And TLC is the group. That's yeah. Okay. TRL. And he was so excited about getting the show, and Howard's like, "John, your your show will be canceled before you know it." And he's like, what are you talking about, Howard? I'm excited. They're giving me the, nah, just they'll change the time slot. They'll move you around. You'll be at six o'clock one night, four the next, two in the morning the next. Nobody will know how to find you. And then you'll be gone. And it's like 25 years ago or 20 years ago, Howard was making, and, and Howard, another genius, was making commentary on, on, on the way a network worked and how it was. And, and I think, Throughout the years, one of the things that I found with the network, and maybe it's just me, is that there, besides the real world, there really doesn't seem to be a lot of stability or a lane that you go with. Like you watch the network like a year ago or there's a, you know, or now there's a, a vampire a show on a team wolf uh, with my dear friend Orny Adams. But then there was another show with zombies. But the point being, there's all different kinds of lanes and things, and it, it still is MTV. And then when you think of MTV, you still, in your mind, as crazy as it sounds, you think about music, and you, but then you look at things like, you know, the Jersey Shore, and you say, okay, well, this is a hit. This is the way it is. But you notice things as they go, and I, I, I know, I, I almost think about, like, Fox football um, pregame show and you have Terry Bradshaw and you have Howie Long and you have 
these people, and you think, when are they going to start making the decision, Jimmy Johnson? And you notice they start bringing in little pieces, taking out pieces, and eventually everybody will be gone and there'll be a new group. But with MTV, I always felt like, I don't know, I never, you never feel like you know the lane. All right, got- well, th- all right, let's talk about this. This is really interesting that you bring this up. And I have a theory on why you and people feel this way. So I'm going to tell you what I think. I think MTV had an incredibly strong brand for a long time. Stronger than I mean, music television. It was the place. It was the place to to that you grew up on, you know, watching music, breaking music stars, releasing the next music video, uh, the VMAs. It was it was it was just culture defining uh loud music oriented television. And when you break away from that, then people start asking, who are you, who are you, who are you? Okay, Fox was a young adult network for a long time. 90210, Melrose Place, 21 Jump Street. They put House on the air in American Idol. These are mainstream, older appeal shows. Nobody says, what the hell happened to Fox? You know, CBS, they have a million different kinds of shows on. They have every kind of genre. They have Amazing Race. They have, they have uh, you know, CSI. They have Two Broke Girls. They have a huge range of shows, Big Bang Theory. Nobody says, what is CBS? Well, maybe they do say, what is CBS? But there's no brand there. There's no brand. It's just a big broadcast network. And there's not much of a brand left at Fox either, in my opinion. So... The question is, I think everybody's saying the question, well, MTV, you had such a strong brand when you were music. What does the what does the M stand for now? And a reviewer recently wrote a review on our new Tuesday night lineup where we have Awkward and Faking It and now this new show called Happy Land. And he gave them good reviews. God bless him. But he asked the same question. This was just a review that was written last week. He asked the same question. He, he asked the question, I wonder what the M stands for on MTV today. I have to ask myself that. I like these shows. I think they're fun. And then he answered it and he said, maybe the M stands for millennial. And I thought that was great. I hadn't seen that before. But I still think we're a youth network. We're the youngest network of all cable and broadcast networks. MTV's median age is 24. Nobody comes close to that. If you take out, you know, the kids networks, Disney and Nick, we are the, the have the youngest median adult age. Everybody else is much older. So I've got, you know, 12 to 24 is coming in droves. And... I think that MTV's got some stability now. Teen Wolf's going five seasons. And I agree with you. And that's what I was going to get into, the bridge. But I'm glad you I'm glad you went toe-to-toe with me there because that's why <laughs> I like to see you get feisty. Uh, <laughs> but what I was going to say was is that you coming in, I felt that, and I'm not pandering to you. I was pander, saying, please pander. No, I'm not going to do it. I, <laughs> I, I, said, I have, if I have one shred of dignity left before you fire me, uh, I'll be good. But I feel like you're going to recreate history. I feel like you were brought in there and I wasn't in that room with Van Toffler, but I have to believe that he sat in that room and said, Hey, remember what you did at the WB. Remember what you did there? They got the scripted shows. You had the dramas, you had the comedies and you had a little bit of reality. Suzanne, all I care, just, just come here. If you can just, if you can just give me 25% of what you did there, I'll be the happiest guy in the world. <laughs> and I wasn't in that meeting, but I, 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 I have to believe 
that's one of the main reasons why he felt safe having you come in and bring you in. Am I wrong? I think that was definitely part of it. Absolutely. Yeah. I, and, you know, part of it was that I love probably my favorite job prior to this one was working at the WB. Um, I do love programming for teens and young adults and thinking about them and thinking about young, young trends. Um, it's a lot of fun to work on these kinds of shows. So part of it was that I was really eager to, to do it again. And part of it was that he was looking for somebody who I think was enthusiastic and passionate about uh, gearing new programming to that audience. I want to ask you a weird question that's that I don't know why this isn't done. You come in the MTV, your average age is 24. Do you ever think to yourself with your development money or, or whatever it is for your executives, hmm, why don't I just hire four young 22-year-old people right out of college, pay them $50,000 each, and they're my contingent that tells me what I'm not seeing or what I might not be seeing about what they want to watch. I got two women and two guys who are 24 or just out of college or Harvard or wherever they are. And I'm just going to consult those four. I'm going to spend 200 grand and I'm going to consult this little think tank here whenever I have to make a decision. I'm not going to not going to say I'm going to do what they say. But I'd like to hear what they have to say. How come no one does that? Well, as a manager, <laughs> would you hire a bunch of 20-somethings and say, tell me which comic to sign or tell me which actor to sign? I don't think you'd do that. You, you're gonna, gonna, you're gonna go with your gut. You're also gonna, uh, you're also gonna see how other people react to them. So we do do an enormous amount. I mean, we have a very uh, proactive research department that engages young people constantly. And in fact, I'm about to next week. I'm gonna do a two-hour focus group where I sit with exactly who you're talking about. Where I sit with 18 to 24 year olds and talk to them and ask them questions and have them. It's going to be a panel of about a dozen of them and my whole programming team's going and we're going to interact with them for two hours next week. We regularly do that. We regularly do call outs. We have online call outs. We bring them in for groups all over the country. We're, we actually engage with young people all the time to do exactly what you say. Awesome. Well, I know you're going to be successful there. We're going to just finish up here with I like to do a uh, a word association or name association. Just say somebody, anybody, uh -oh, and you just, you just say what comes to your mind. It could be a short story. It could be a few <laughs> words, anything. Mint chocolate chip ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. Um, <laughs> Mike Myers. Funny, um, unique, uh, unusual. The real world. Uh, I think of um, when you say that, I, I, my head goes immediately to um, working with John Murray and sort of reengaging the process. And re I guess the word would be reinvention. Oprah Winfrey. Amazing. Remarkable. Martin Lawrence. Hilarious. Uh, strong, strong-willed. J.J. Abrams. Genius. Josh Whedon. Genius. 
<laughs> Queen Latifah. And they're both so passionate, too. Passionate is another word I'd use for JJ and Joss. Just, you know, committed. You know, uh, I'm sorry, Queen Latifah? Yes. Uh, brilliant, warm. She's so warm. She's warm in her performances. Don't you think so? You just Absolutely. love her. She just comes across as likable, just an immensely likable woman. And she is. She's a great person. Lauren Michaels. Grateful. Probably the word that comes to mind first. I'm so grateful that I uh, that he hired me and that I got to work there for three years. I also met my husband working there, um, who was a writer on the show at the time. So, and that's my last name. Your husband, Greg Daniels. So, thank you the... for my my career. My my thank you for my personal life. <laughs> grateful is the word I think of. So, Greg obviously, you know, created the office and parks and recreation, the King of the Hill, with a uh, group of other talented people who we all know. So you met him through the business of, yeah. Now they say a woman knows within five minutes of meeting a man if she's going to be with him. Did I you did, know? I did. Yeah, I knew within five minutes. That's awesome. Can you tell us a quick story about that? Um. So my college roommate, uh, I, I went to Harvard. And um, my freshman year, Conan O'Brien was president of the Lampoon as a junior, which was he was president of the Lampoon as a junior and a senior, which was unheard of. So he was funny and brilliant and special back then. And my college roommate, who was a little bizarre, God love her, um, uh, became obsessed with him, obsessed with Conan. I'm constantly talking about Conan, who I didn't know who he was. I'm a freshman there. I have no idea who he was, and I'm not interested in the lampoon at, at the time. Um, and uh, she just keeps talking about there's this great guy. His name's Conan. He's so amazing. I don't know how she met him, really. Uh, I don't know whether they were in a class together or she. Anyway, she. so I would I would see gifts, gifts on her desk in the room, and I would say, Oh, who's that for? And she'd say, oh, I'm bringing that to Conan. <laughs> <laughs> really? This is true. So, um, uh, so when I, so Greg and Conan were writing partners, um, at Saturday Night Live. So we also all got hired when started the same day. Um, uh, it was a Monday in January of 1988. And, uh, so that Saturday, there's a party after Saturday Night Live. And Every Saturday they have a party at a different great place where, uh, it's just an amazing thing. Yeah. And I, my, my, I invited my friend Bill Berkman to come and he came to the show and then, uh, was a good friend of mine from college. And then we went to the party and, uh, at the party I walked up to Conan and said to Conan, um, hey, you know, you probably don't remember me, but my freshman year roommate essentially stalked you. And I just wanted to say hello. Um, uh, and I'm I'm Lauren's assistant. I'm working here. I just started this week, too. And he said, oh, hi, nice to meet you. Um, uh, do you know my writing partner, Greg Daniels? And I said, why? No, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. What a great story. Okay. Biggest disappointment in show business. I I, I get disappointed when shows that I think stink get high ratings. 
it makes me crazy. And I'm not going to I'm not going to actually point to and say which shows because I don't want to insult people that I'm friendly with or known in the business. I think we all know which ones they are. <laughs> exactly. But like, part of me is like, come on, America, you could do better than that. <laughs> Your proudest moment professionally. Um, I think, uh, there was a time when we felt the WB was really going to make it probably around year five or six where we thought we're on the map. We're beating UPN handily. We're going to be the fifth network, fifth broadcast network, not UPN. They're going to fold and we're, cause it was really I wrote this book that you mentioned called season finale. The, 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 my original title for the book that I pitched to Harper Collins was the fight for fifth place. Um, cause, and that's really how we looked at it. We, we wanted to be the fifth network and who was going to be the fifth network. And it was all about that. And there was a moment and, and it was, it was probably my proudest moment. And it goes back to the question you asked me about why I left, because to go from that high of feeling like we've done it and it's so much to get on the map and we're going to make it and we're going to be on seven nights a week and have original programming and build this thing and, and build up to a hundred percent coverage of the country. And then, you know, feel like upper management might fold your company or dissolve it at any moment. It was too heartbreaking. Wow. That's, that's great stuff. So last question is, what advice do you have for the young artist, the young actor, or the young executive who's starting watching television with their parents at home, has a dream of being in the business, has a dream of being in any business to get to the next level, but essentially this business and to have the kind of career where you have, where you start with Lauren Michaels as an assistant, you move up, you become a president multiple times, and now you're doing it again. What advice do you have for people to help them get from those humble beginnings to where you are now? Well, I think I would, I've used the word passion, I think, a lot in this interview and talking about people like Kevin Williamson and Joss Whedon and J.J. Abrams and you, Barry, you're really passionate about what you do and the people you represent and the comedy business and you can tell that you love it and you're engaged in it and after all these years you are committed to it and so enjoy it and I love that and I I think... Um, you know, at the risk of sounding treacly, I would say follow your passion, go for it, go for what you want, um, uh, that it's hard work, that it's work to break in, that, you know, having a work ethic that where you when you break in, where you're willing to work really hard, you know, there's... Um, there's a sense, some of the research that we hear back at MTV is that with some young millennials, there's a sense of entitlement and they're in their job for six months and asking for, you know, promotion. You know, it's hard work is my advice. We put in the hard work, but go for it. Be passionate. Bring bring ideas to to the table that are your ideas and whatever your environment in if you if you want to act start acting make make videos become a vine star do you get yourself out there on youtube if you want to write start writing write a lot of spec scripts write different kinds of spec scripts don't be precious about it you know do what you want to do and know that hard work comes with it 
all these people that we've talked about today, including Lauren Michaels, are inc- including Oprah Winfrey, are incredibly hard workers. You should see Oprah Winfrey's work ethic. That woman works incredibly hard, and we all know she doesn't have to, and that she could be spending a lot more time at her beautiful home in Maui than she does. And she's doing all of these shows, and she does so much um, uh, work to give back, to and, and, and so much work with her school in Africa. It's unbelievable. So I think that would be my advice. Fantastic. Suzanne Daniels, as you, as you were talking during these last few questions... I said to myself, this is one of the most amazing interviews I've ever had the privilege of being with. And I am so, (laughs) I'm almost like emotional because I just feel like this has just been so amazing. And the audience is going to love you. That's so nice, Barry. Thank you for having me uh, today. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much. And as always... This is Industry Standard with me losing my place. If you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. (laughs) They say it's glory. I'll scream in name. Put you on shoulders, walk you to fame. You'll get all the money, drive that fancy car. All the people love you, cause you're going for. Life is for the dreamers, they have all to gain. It's never quite over. So it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley A fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.